ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terra Master, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. GPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV dampener with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Byron Goggin, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on. I know we haven't talked in years, but welcome to ATV Talk and our little role reversal here. It's crazy, right? Like 20 years and look at us. <laughs> all this white shit on our face. <laughs> well, my head, the top of my head's all white too, so. <laughs> I think the last time you seen me, I had blonde hair. How have you been, brother? Everything good? Everything's great. Um, you know, you can see I've started a new venture. Um, I still work full time at Duncan Racing, and um, I do ATV talk uh, when I'm not building ATVs. Why did you decide to start this? I mean, you of all people, like, because when I used to come to you with the camera and put the camera in your face, and I'm like, Lenny, what's up? You'd be like, No, 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 I, I can't do this, and you'd like hide around the trailer and stuff. And now here you are, asking people. Um, How'd that happen? And look at me being the interviewer once again. Right. There you go. Uh, <laughs> well, to, the, the, to answer the question, which I would have got to answer uh, farther into the, into the discussion or the conversation is um, I got tired of nobody telling the story. There's no outlet for anybody in the ATV world to tell their story. Um, I have two wonderful daughters, uh, my wife's oldest and my wife's youngest. And, um, my wife's oldest graduated college for social media advertising. And my youngest wants to be a film maker. So she will be bouncing in and talking with us at some point, uh, because she's uh, very intrigued to meet you and ask you questions. So that's great. I always love to teach new people. Teach them how to be poor the rest of their life. (laughs) (laughs) But you got out of the ATV world. (laughs) You know, so those were some of the best days of my life. So might not have had a lot, might not have had two nickels to rub together, but you know, the time was priceless. I, I 1000% agree. That's why I'm, I'm still doing it. And I was born into it. And, uh, 
it's an incredible life. I've got to travel the world. And, um, you know, since I've seen you, I've had three or four careers inside the one career that I'm having, basically racing from Dakar to Baja to works to GNC, you know, we've just been all over the gamut doing everything. That's fantastic. I'm glad that I'm glad that your dreams that you've latched onto your dreams and followed them and they've taken you places. That's what life's all about, brother. I mean, it's way, life is way too short, you know, and, and as we know, life changes so quickly and you can be on top of the world one day and down at the bottom the next. And we have to hold on to those great things, those great things and those great experiences. And as far as I'm concerned, ATV racing were some of the greatest experiences of my life. And not only were they great experiences, but they really trained me to be a successful person in life. You know, when I started racing ATVs, I was like 25 years old. I mean, I started, I started racing, you know, when I, well, I got my first bike. I don't have like some crazy good story, you know, like my parents were divorced. My dad bought me a dirt bike because we lived in the middle of nowhere. And I only had 30 people in my graduating class and it took a two hour radius to get those 30 people. So there was never anything to do. So we bought a dirt bike and it was in a crate and neither of us knew anything about mechanics much, but we figured it out we put it together and it was a piece of junk and made it work. And then my dad said, I was like 11 at the time. And he said, I tell you what, if you buy yourself a real helmet, he goes, I'll pay for half a dirt bike, whatever it is that you think that you can afford. So I went and I started scraping, uh, scraping, uh, icing off the floor at Dunkin' Donuts, right. To save money. And I bought my first Belmoto three helmet. It was $205 or something like that, which was a fortune in the 1970s. And I was 11 years old and had the hurricane lightning bolts on it and everything. And I still have that helmet to this very day. And it sits in my garage right as I walk in the door down there and I look at it every day. That's the very first thing I ever bought with my money and it still hangs there to this day. And it started my career, you know, and then uh, many years later, you know, I raced dirt bikes, but I was never that great at it. You know, just like a B-class rider. I was always too tall. Yeah, there was always that joke, Byron, you look like an ape fucking a football when you race, you know? So, and then I got hurt at the Pontiac Silverdome. I split my knee in half like a golf tee. And they told me that I could never ride dirt bikes again. This is, you know, medical wasn't where it is now. They said, if you put your leg down, you're going to, you know, you're going to destroy your knee. It's over for you. And then I sold everything. I didn't have anything in a year later. It's like ATVs, like they race ATVs. That would be cool. Like maybe I'll do that. And I bought a, what, a, what a 250, that TRX 250, that blue and white one. Yep. You know, that bike. Went to my first race and there was a guy there racing ATVs and he was like the hot shit at the track. Robert Blandino was his name. I shouldn't call him out, but oh, well, I just did. Sorry, Robert. Anyway, and he said, oh, you're racing ATVs now. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give it a try. And he says, well, the day you beat me is the day I quit racing. Well, <laughs> should have never said that because, you know, that's just goals for me. And I got second the first race and the second race I beat him and then everybody gave him gave him heck over it. And I, I basically won every race the rest of the year locally, you know, and then I thought that I was somebody, uh, I was nobody, but I thought I was somebody, you know how that goes. Local tracks are much different than nationals. 
And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to my first national. It'll be cool. And I'm going to race Travis Spader. And, you know, maybe I'll take out an ad in Dirt Wheel saying, Travis, I'm coming for you. How naive was I? How, how stupid? Anyway, Curtis Sparks had given me a carburetor and a pipe, and that was about it for my TRX. And he was such a nice guy. And he came up to me at the first nationals that I went to, which was Loretta Lenz. And I think that was 1996, five or six. And he wanted, he introduced himself because he'd never met me. And, uh, you know, and I was all cocky. Like, you know, I'm Mr. Wynn and all that. I, I've only lost one race and it was a second, you know, and he says, well, let me look at your bike. And he looks at the bike and he stands there and looks at me for a minute. And he goes, you know, he goes, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. He says, but here's the way the race is going to go, Byron. He says, the gate's going to drop. By the time you get halfway down the track, you're going to be in last place. By the time you get around the first corner, you're going to be 10 bikes back. He says, four laps from the end of the race, they're going to lap you. And with two laps, you're going to quit. And I'm like, who are you to tell me what I'm going to do? Gate drops, last out of the gate, halfway down the track. I was last around the first corner, 10 laps behind or 10 bike lengths behind exactly how he called it. And I quit with two laps to go. He was, it was like he was a prognosticator or something, but you know. Curtis was so good and so talented at everything he did. He knew what the competition was and he knew that I was nothing, especially with the bike that I had. And I remember my wife calling me out at the time. And this is what I mean when I say, you know, life lessons from ATV racing. She called me out and she goes, I've never seen you quit anything in your life. And she says, and I don't expect to ever see you quit anything again. And she was upset with me. You know, and I went and I sat down by the river at Loretta Lynn's and sulked for a while, you know, and then I went home and I trained all winter long and I went to every chance I could to practice. I practiced and, you know, every race I could go to in District 14 in Michigan, I did that. And then I started, I went to every national. And I remember uh, Shelly saying at the time, she was like, I don't know how you think that we're going to afford to go to nationals. And I said, because I really wanted to go, you know, and she goes, if you can find out, find a way to go to nationals and we can be able to afford it with not, you know, knocking into our budget because she didn't work at the time. She was a stay at home mom. It was just my income. We'll go. And so locally, when I was racing dirt bikes, I had been doing these videos, just like these music videos of people racing and they loved it. You know what I mean? And People pay $20 for a video, which is fair. I mean, that's any video you buy is 20 bucks and everybody wants to see themselves on TV and nobody was doing anything like that. And I worked at NBC at the time. So basically what I would do is I would go and I'd shoot the races and I go to NBC and edit all night long. So my shift ended at 11 o'clock at night and I'd edit until like five in the morning when the next shift was coming home, then I'd go home, go to sleep for a couple hours and go. And then I'd make these videos. So I thought, I wonder if that would work at ATV racing. I'm going to try and sell some videos. So I went down and I started videotaping guys and I made music videos to, you know, Motley Crue songs and different things, basically stealing music, which you're not supposed to, but you know, it was also, we were so small at the time, nobody was going to call anybody out. And that's what paid. That's what, paid for the fuel to get there and, you know, and 
we had a motor home and stuff, but it was, if people didn't buy those videos, we weren't going to be coming. So it was as simple as that, you know, and, and that's kind of how the whole thing got started. I'm just rambling, but it's the story. It's how it, it's how it started. And then I remember it came to Ashtabula and George Davis, you know, mover and shaker. Um, he came to me and he's like, you know, and, and by, by this time, everybody knew who Byron was and what he was doing. And everybody looked forward to the videos and stuff. And George says, have you ever thought about trying to get this stuff on ESPN, like on bike week or whatever? And coincidentally, you know, in my job, I did a lot of freelance work for ESPN and I already had some connections there and people at, at bike week. There's a guy named Chet Burks who owned Chet Burks productions out of uh, Georgia and Chet Burks is actually the one who produced that Bike Week show. And the Bike Week people, though, they were like all bikes. They didn't want anything to do with ATVs. Like, oh, you know how that whole thing goes. It's like oh, snowboarders and skiers. They like it. Yeah, put the two together. It's like oil and water. For what reason? I don't know. But whatever. And George did some backdoor dealings or something, man, and, and, and got them soft, right? And made it easy for me to use my connection. And we kind of came at them from two different sides. And so Chet said, if you get me the stuff, if you shoot it, we'll put it in. It's some B-roll and, and you got to write it. You got to make it so we don't have to do anything. So I did. I shot the stuff and I wrote a little story and then, then they would put in like a minute and a half in their half hour show. And then I remember everybody coming to me and like complaining. They're like, how come there's only a minute and a half? I'm like, listen, you're lucky that we have anything. Right. right. And then I said, we got to prove ourselves. Like we got to like, just keep at it. Like, let's, keep going. And, and so that's what happened. We kept going and I kept sending. And then they're like, can you do a standup? Which means are in front of the camera introducing it. And then you just go ahead and do the story and then send it as a package. I'm like, cool. So then the next thing, you know, like I'm doing on camera stuff and, you know, and we're starting to rise and people are starting to see it. And then the promoters are starting to feel it because at one time, I guess there was the way I understood it. There was only like 60 people showing up at nationals, you know, I mean, it was on the verge of being dead after all the ATV, you know, stuff that was going on with all the lawsuits and plants and, you know, in the hospitals to call lawyers and all that, like, you know, that's why the manufacturers disappeared. And, uh, and then we started seeing people come and they were coming from all over the country and people would be like, how did you hear about this? And they're like, Oh, I saw this videotape or I saw it on ESPN. And so like, I started getting credit for that, but I don't know how much credit I deserved. I was just trying to make it so I could go racing, you know, I was just, right. but I didn't get paid for any of that. But what helped is the promoters saw, they saw their entries go up. They saw it go up by 40 and then 80 and then a hundred, you know, those numbers are big numbers for local promoters, you know, and, uh, and they were, they were crediting me. So basically what was happening is I didn't have to pay to go to the, you know, I didn't have to pay an entry fee, you know, and if I was camping overnight, I didn't have to pay. Like they, they were happy to have me there, you know, as long as I promoted their event. So that helped. I mean, every little bit helps when you got nothing. Right. You know? And so, and, and that's how it all kind of took off. Like, there you go. So when you were, I just talked for 15 minutes straight. Sorry. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Uh, so when did the production of 
your extreme videos come out? Well, it's complicated. It, well, no, I'm just trying to think because the extreme videos, it was just, I just, it was just a name change. It was always kind of the same thing. It started off as just music videos where like it was music videos and guys going around the track. Quite frankly, I think that's what people liked the most anyway. I don't think that they really needed to hear a whole dissertation on who was winning and who was coming from behind or whatever. It was nice, you know, um, cause like when Wes Miller came along, right. I, I felt that honestly, I felt a little threatened by Wes, you know, because he came and he was doing like, frankly, cool shit, right? Like he was taking guys out and he's like having them jump over like everything, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> man, I kind of want to be doing that too. Like I'm just doing national stuff. But then at the same time, you know, I knew that it was super important that I do the national stuff, right? Like, because it was helping grow the sport. That's what it was all about is growing the sport. And, and in doing all this, the people became my family. I mean, it was literally the first real family. I think I have ever had. Like I was only kid growing up. And like I said, I lived in the country in the middle of nowhere. And my parents were divorced when I was young. And you know, I had a family and, and my wife and my son and my daughter, she was like, she came to the track at two months old. Right. But like, this was like that big family, like a big Italian family, or, you know, those big families that people have. And it felt, it felt great to be like, where, wherever you go, like, people know you and, and they're thanking you. And it's, it felt great to be able to help people see it helped. Listen, everybody wanted that sport to grow. Everybody wanted to be noticed. Everybody wanted the manufacturers to come back after they had pulled out. Everybody just wanted a little time in the sun and we didn't have anything like social media or anything like that. We had nothing like that, you know? And so for us to be able to get things on television, that was like a miracle, you know? And then to be able to make it stay once it got there, that was another miracle. And I remember, you know, begging people like, please tune into bike week because we need the ratings to it, you know? And, uh, so we went through all that and, and, and I could see how much it meant to everybody. And because it meant so much to everybody, it meant a lot to me. And I've always been one of those goal oriented people that when I set my sights on something, I, I pretty much achieve it, you know, no matter how hard it is. And it, it never seems like a direct path there, which is kind of the fun of it sometimes. Um, and then that's where the idea for the, the banquet came. I think that, that the banquet was the thing that really, um, where people really started to take notice of what I was trying to accomplish, right? Which was to take this sport to another level, you know, and it was working. It was, it was small. Like, how do you start with a group of 60 people at the starting gate? And that's it for a national and grow that. Like, that's near impossible, you know? And, uh, but we were able to do it together as a team, as a big family, we were able to do that. And, uh, 
And so I came up with the idea of the National Awards Banquet because I thought there's not much holding people here, meaning at nationals. You know, you show up, you win, you're a pro, like, and you get, what was it, Lenny? Like 500 bucks to win a race or something? It wasn't very much, no. Like, what's that? Like, <laughs> why would our top riders want to stay? Why would Gary Denton getting on a plane and coming from California, right? Why would he want to do that for a $500 purse? And, you know, later on, John Pellin understood that. And so did George. Like, like there was there's some people in our network who really got that. And so for me, it was like, what can we do to make people? Cause I guess one day it hit me. I'm like, so what do you get when you win this championship? <laughs> right. And people are like, yeah, you get an attaboy and a pat on the back and a number one. I don't even think you got a number one plate at the time. The AMA was against that. They were all for it for the bikes. But if I remember correctly, it's been a long time. I, I don't feel like we were putting number one plates on the bikes when you won the national championship. I think you just kept your number. Is that right? Do you remember? No, it's always had an, a, a one as long as I've been around. Because I remember pushing for it because I was like, all right, listen, you know, because John Ayers used to come with the T-shirts and it'd have like Timmy Farr on it or whatever. And it would be his number, whatever it is, or Gust or whatever. And I was like, well, dude just won the national championship. Why didn't he have a number one plate? Like, why doesn't he have a yellow back plate or something? Like, we should have something. And what else are you getting? Nothing. So I'm like, I, and I had done like event promotion and things like that. I understood promotion. I always have. I'm surprised that I've never really been in that field more. But anyway. And so I came up with the idea of a national awards banquet. And I said, I'm going to show these people like what it's like to be treated. Right. Right. To, if you're going to win something, you're going to win something, you know? And I didn't want to just give another trophy like they gave at national awards banquet. That's why I came up with those big glass trophies. Like nobody had seen anything like that before, you know? And I really was trying hard to give everybody like a super bowl type ring. You know, right. It was very difficult to be able to do that. I forget what the challenges were. I don't know if anybody ever ended up getting it. I tried, I was really trying hard for that. Cause how badass would that be? Right. Like to yeah. get that ring, even if you don't wear it, you have it. Right. And I don't know. And then, you know, and everybody was skeptical of the first banquet. They're like, eh. but I guess I had gained enough respect by then that people took a chance and people, like Duncan racing and, you know, um, uh, well, everybody really Wayne, Wayne Meridian from PEP and, and Wayne Henson. And like the list goes down Nacarados. Like they were the, you guys were the first people to step up, like, cause you kind of got it right. You weren't sure what it would be. Right. <laughs> you might get there and it'll be a piece of junk, you know, and, and uninteresting, but at least it would be seeing your friends or whatever. Um, and I knew that. I knew I had to bring it big and I knew it had to be like amazing. And I pulled out every stop and I pulled out so much money out of my own pocket. And I used all the people in my industry who were part of staging and all that. Cause I don't know if you remember the first banquet, but like it was lights and Chrome and like, I got everybody to donate the world, man. We were, everybody who came went away with like stuff and not like just stickers like they're going home with full sets of plastic or like a cub 
or whatever it happens to be. And we had tricycle races and like, it was cool. Like everybody had a good time, you know, and the word of that spread the people who didn't make it the first year, man, I I'm telling you, when I came to the first national, that's the next year after the banquet, people were like, when's the next banquet I'm signing up now. Can I sign up now? And it's like, it's not for another four months. And they're like, no, no, no. I want to sign up now. And do you need more donations? And that's how it rolled, you know? And, and then I, then I could see the power behind it. And I knew that if I could just keep this going and if I could keep this banquet, like as the crown jewel at the end of the year where we can attract sponsors. And that's what started to happen. People who didn't, who never came to the track would come to the banquet. We had manufacturers there secretly, you know, people from Honda and Suzuki and stuff like, you know, and then the AMA was kind of shamed into coming because, you know, we had like this love hate relationship with the AMA and the AMA had a love hate relationship with us. They didn't really want us. They just wanted our money, you know? Yeah. They don't, they still don't care about ATVs. They just want the money. No. And I remember fighting with Roger Ansel. I mean, literally fighting. And I mean, I, it's at one point I had to pull the shame card. I'm like, all right, fine. Then you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. And you can't tell me I'm not going to do it because I'm just going to do it. And you can't, can't stop me, you know? And I didn't mean to be like that, but like I shamed them into it. And then they showed up at the banquet with their own number one plates. They weren't going to give anybody number one plates. And here all they come and they have the number one plates and they're like, oh, we're so pleased to prove. But it didn't matter. They were there. And that's all that mattered. Right. Whether they were shamed into it or not, they showed up. And so the second year, you know, and I had a lot of fun the second year. I had that pink suit. I don't know if you remember and played that song or that thing with you smell what the rock is cooking. And we came in and it was just like a blast. Like everybody had a good time. And I think everybody looked forward to that banquet. And I'm so glad that I did it. It was a challenge that I never thought that I always knew I could pull it off. I don't think I knew how much work it would be on top of racing a national series myself. Cause I was a racer too. And filming. I don't know how I did it, quite frankly. I do like a 10th of what I used to do and I'm exhausted now, but I am 54 now, but anyway, yeah. So there's the evolution of it all. And that's kind of how it happened. So I've seen on Facebook that you, uh, with, with camera equipment, what do you exactly do now? So, all right. So this is what I was alluding to earlier when I talked about ATV racing really influenced my life in, in as far as you know, as a racer, and when you get to a national level, and even 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 a local level, I'm, I, I don't mean to, you know, split that, but I think a national level is a little bit different because the commitment to be there is so much. It's so much money and so much everything, and the the caliber of people racing there. I mean, you got to bring your A game every time you throw your leg over, you know, and get behind the bars. And, uh, and there's so many times, and I'm sure you felt it like you just, you don't think you can do it or you're at Loretta lens and it's 110 and you've got your helmet packed full of ice and you're already sweating and you're sitting under the trees. You haven't even made it to the gate yet. And you're like, how am I going to run a 30 plus, you know, a 30 mo 30 minute moto plus, like, how am I going to do that? But you do it. Like I didn't do it my first time out. I quit. I was a quitter, but 
after after a while, you learn things about yourself. You learn like I can do this. There's not much that I can't accomplish if I really put my mind to it. I look at a guy like Todd Mackey, right? He's he has the affliction. I think it's MS. I'm sorry, Todd, if you're listening, but like he's still racing to this day. Glory be to that guy. Fantastic, right? And I remember being at a track one time and I'm filming and this guy comes off of his quad and he gets up and his leg is over there, right? And I'm like, what? what's up? His leg's off, right? But as it turns out, he had a prosthetic leg, right? And the people come running or, no, the leg wasn't off. It was twisted backwards, like all contorted, right? I'm like, oh my God, look what he did to his leg. And the, the medics come over and they're like, oh, stay still, stay still. And he like, he gets up and he like twists the leg back into place and he hops back on the quad and he takes off. And I'm like, oh my God. But like those those are the people also who just really put a dot on the eye. And it's like, if you want something bad enough and you try hard enough with the grace of God, you will achieve it. Right. And so this is a long setup for what I do now. So after ATV racing and after, you know, I won three amateur national championships myself, right. I won the, what was it? The four stroke B. And then I moved up to the, Pro-Am and I won that four stroke Pro-Am and the 30 plus, right? Nice achievement. I was never a pro, could have never been one. Those guys were just amazing to me. And I, and really I, I love just filming them and being a part of their organizations and you know, all that. So the way it went down, I loved, but back to the thing. So when I left ATV racing, I was kind of bored. and the way that I left ATB racing, it was kind of like one of those things, the time had come. I knew the time was coming. I was praying about it in the motorhome on the way home. And I'm like, if it's time for me to leave this sport, show me the way, but don't send me out on a stretcher. Right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to go out that way. And then a bunch of things happened that made it very clear that it wasn't time. It wasn't for me to be in ATB racing anymore, because there was a lot of things happening at that time in my life. You know, I had, pace coming to me and they wanted me to promote the, the indoor series and be a part of that. Cause they knew my influence and they knew that I could get ATV racers there. So I had those opportunities and I, there's opportunities in our, in our sport. And like, I'm like, I could go that path or, but that's going to take me away from my family. And I have two small kids and I really, you know, I've been doing this. I think I've achieved everything that I can right now. And some things happened and it was just very clear that it was time for me to move on. So I sold everything. So because I, I remember having a conversation with Tim Farr one day, we were at red Bud and we were leaning up against the trailer and Tim and I used to talk pretty deep a lot. Like he's was a really good friend of mine. And he goes, he was telling me about if when the day comes that he had to quit, he goes, I would have to just sell everything and walk away. He goes, I could never come back. And I knew exactly what he was saying. And, and I felt the same, like when it came time to go, it had to be an all or nothing deal because it was going to hurt too much to be half in and half out. And you can't do anything half you got to, especially in racing, it's got to be full. Well, you can't do anything in life half. It's got to be full on, or you're just going to, you know, be average and unsatisfied. I think. So I sold everything. And then I, you know, I started concentrating on my career more at, uh, 
at NBC. And then I moved on to Fox Sportsnet. And, you know, and then I uh, started producing things and doing things more. And I won some Emmys. And uh, then I decided to start my own television show. And it was about things that families could do in the outdoors. And uh, I covered anything from ATV racing, of course, to hot air ballooning, snowmobiling, skydiving, scuba diving, you name it, swimming with whales, you know, swimming with manatees in Florida, whatever. And it was fun. And I won like six Emmys doing that, you know, and Emmys in the television industry are harder to come by than national championships and at the GNC, you know. But I was groomed for it. All those years of racing, I knew what commitment was. I knew what it would take to achieve that level. And so that's what I did. And, you know, and then the, then the crash hit in Michigan. We had like 60% unemployment or something like that in Michigan. Bottom fell out. And uh, I went through a divorce, unfortunately. And, uh, and Discovery came to Detroit to shoot monster garage. And they knew about me because of the television show that I had, cause I had been pitching it to discovery national geographic and travel channel. So they knew about me and they thought they'd take a, a chance on me when they came to Michigan. So I started shooting monster garage. I'm sure you know that show with Jesse yep. James and all that. And I just started off as one of their extra cameramen. And by the time the show was over, I was the director of photography and, uh, the owner of the company who's out of LA who, and they give, they provide shows for Nat Geo discovery history uh, and some other ones um, said, are you interested in deadliest catch? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'd love to go shoot deadliest catch. I got nothing going on here in Michigan when this show's over because of the crash and the divorce and stuff. And, uh, so uh, I was supposed to go to Deadliest Catch. And then I started to get a little worried about it because I'm more of a land guy and I knew I was going to get sick. And they, you know, they shipped me out there and I was in Dutch Harbor and I was doing some land stuff and gone out on the boat yet. And then they had an immediate need for ice road truckers. They said, can you get on a plane and fly over to ice road truckers? And I'm like, yeah, I'd rather do ice road truckers anyway. So I went over and I shot season three. Vice Road Truckers. That's a whole long story. Then went back for season four of Ice Road Truckers. I mean, I was dealing with 70 degrees below zero, you know, Arctic wind. And here's me from ATV racing. I'd get on the back of the semis that were going 70 miles an hour down the Dalton highway and strap myself in. And uh, there was no fear there. It was just like racing to me you know, getting the shots that nobody else would get. I loved it. I quickly became a hero and, uh, yeah. And then, so I did that and then I moved on to some national geographic shows. I don't know if you've heard of them, but like I did, uh, uh, wild justice for two or three years. That was a show about California's department of fish and game and wildlife. And used to go in on these million dollar drug raids and film all that with, you know, against Mexican drug cartel. And we were fully, fully camoed and full body armor and all that stuff. And I did wicked tuna and 
airplane repo and like all the big shows for Nat Geo discovery and history. So that's what I was doing. And I did that up until about four years ago. And then politics kind of took over. And I remember the first, the first when Pussygate started, excuse my language, but that's what they call it. You know, that's when all, that's when everything changed for me. Like everybody stopped watching reality television. Everybody stopped watching deadliest catch, nice road truckers and all that. And the ratings went from all the way up here to here. And I don't know if most people know how television works, but there's no ratings. There's no sponsor dollars. There's no sponsor dollars. They're not making a television show. And if they're not making a television show, I don't have a job. Right. And so within less than six months, the bottom fell out, all that work went away and everybody just went to politics. And that's where we've been ever since. Everybody's just tuned in on politics and it's Super Bowl numbers and it's the biggest reality show that you've ever seen. And so it's, it's changed viewing for people. And I'm not turning this into a big political thing. That's not it. That's just what happened, you know? So no matter what side it is that you choose. And I hope that people don't choose a side. I hope that please people let's move to the middle and work together to start solving some problems here in this country past that I'll get off the soapbox. And so now uh, I moved back to Michigan and I do corporate television. Now it's not the most exciting thing in the world. Um, it's not like racing ATVs or riding on the back of a semi or, you know, and I, I forgot the whole thing. I mean, that career took me all over the world. I was in, lived, uh, was in Ethiopia for six months doing large carnivore surveys, like uh, shooting new species of animals like the obsidian lion and the, uh, the black leopard over there working with the Ethiopian wildlife uh, authority. Um, been to Germany and Austria and Switzerland. I've been to Bern, Switzerland, doing a thing for NASA over there. So it was, it was a blessing, you know, and it, and it still is. I mean, people say, boy, aren't you like, aren't you down now that you're just doing automotive stuff in Detroit? And I'm like, nope, I'm not. I feel very blessed. I'm very blessed because I'm back with my children. My children have had children. I'm a granddad now. I got two grandbabies that are about a year old, just, just turned a year. So one's like 13 months and one's like 14 months or whatever. But it's great to be around them and it's great to be home and it's great to be around my friends. And, you know, life is great. I, I'm loving life and it's just a, a blessing by God. And, you know, I'm, I'm making money. I wasn't for a while. It was very tough on me. I'm not going to lie watching my livelihood go away. And, uh, and, uh, but I've bounced back through the grace of God and here I stand. And so this year, my plans, I'm heading to Yosemite sometime this year and I'm going to uh, climb half dome. I'm going to sit on the face of half dome up there and I'm going to give thanks and praise to my Lord and savior, Jesus Christ for turning my life around from like you, you had, you would have to understand it's been a rough three years for me. Like it's tough to watch working for a network like national geographic discovery and history, watching that go away, you know, over stuff like politics. It just makes no sense to me, but you know, it was, it was a tough hit. Do you but, think, do you think those guys are going to come back? 
I don't know. It depends on what, what this country decides to do, you know, because everything we've talked about this before in you and I, Lenny, and I'm sure everybody, you know, back at the racetrack, people would be like, I just don't understand. Like ATVs racing is cool. Why can't we get it on TV? And I'm like, it's the same as anything. Like I could get, and no offense to women's ping pong, but I could get women's ping pong on TV if somebody would sponsor it. So let's pretend, and I'm making generalizations and I'm sorry, Tampax came along and said, we're going to give you a half a million dollars to be on TV. You know what? Women's ping pong is going to be on TV. And that's the problem that we had with ATV racing. Nobody had deep pockets like that. And until the deep pockets came along, we're not being on TV any bigger than what Byron Goggin or Wes could do or George Davis or, um, or um, John Pellin, right? And so that, that was it. And anybody else who was trying to promote the sport, I just, those people uh, to me were huge. You know, they were, they were, I don't know what I would have done without them coming along and supporting in all the ways that they did, you know, because we all kind of worked hand in hand to move the sport forward. And so, you know, will it change in the future? I don't know. The networks, the networks, we're a divided country right now. Right. And they figured out how to make money and it's all about money. So whether it is, if you watch Fox news, you know, they know their audience and they're going to preach to their audience. And if you watch CNN, they know their audience and they're going to preach to their audience. And nobody represents the middle because there's nobody who care. Like people only want to hear the extremes. They only want to hear what they care about. Nobody's really working middle. And until we get back to that, it, it's going to it's going to continue because people can't turn away from the train wreck right now. You know what I mean? And so. And this is the greatest reality show ever. So that's that's where we are. So I just pray, I pray for people that we can we can all just start to get along again, right? And start to figure shit out. Like that's where we need to be. And then I get called crazy because I have that opinion, but that's okay. Nah, you're that's good, right. brother. But uh why what was your last year in ATVs? And and do you remember that? It was, yeah, it was 2000, it was 2000, 2000, 2001. Okay. Because we had, we were invited, a bunch of us were invited, Jeremy Shell and Shane Hitt and Tim Farr and, you know, trying to think who the rest, I think Little was there and Tom Miller was there and... Some other people. I'm sorry, it's been 20 years. Um, but we were all invited to race in Montreal by Sylvain Arsenu. I can't ever say his name. I love Sylvain, though. He's a great guy. Um, he invited us all up to race at the Olympic Stadium, right? And uh, and that's where it came apart for me. I mean, we had the best time up there. It was like for the the group of us guys to go and just and have a good time in Montreal. It was it was awesome. We had a fantastic time. And, uh, I think we went to a little too hard the night before. And when I was racing the next day, uh, I didn't have any energy or strength because we got like two hours sleep or something that night. And I came up short on a big double, like a hundred foot double. And I don't know, I don't know if you know, a lot of people know that like I broke my neck, right. I knocked myself out. I was out for a half hour. When I hit, I just ragdolled. A lot of people thought I was dead. 
because they carted me off and I never moved. And I remember waking up <laughs> and there was this Frenchman over me with like needle and thread. And he's like speaking French and I have no idea what he's saying. And then Tom Carlson was there and there was an interpreter and the guy's like, do you know where you are? And I'm like, and I was looking around and I went to say something and I started spitting out teeth. <laughs> I'm like, this isn't good. I'd say I'm at a race. And Tom said, they need to sew you up. And I'm like, sew me up. So they sewed up my chin. I bit my tongue in half. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. You know, um, that scared me. I couldn't race at the same level. Um, and I wasn't really good enough to be at that level with those guys. Like I could handle that track, but I shouldn't have gone for that double. Um, and, uh, and then I recovered and you know, we went to Danville and I was having a great race and it was a TT track and I was having a great practice. And there was like these two slowdown bumps that I could actually double. And they had a water barrel at the corner full of water and it shouldn't have been full of water for an ATV. And like, I just caught it. I just caught it. And it flew over the handlebars and my helmet caught, snapped my neck again. And I remember laying on the ground and they're like, don't move. And I'm like, as long as I'm moving, brother, I'm moving, right? You're not going to stop me. I just, that was always my biggest fear of racing was to be, you know, paralyzed. And I went to the, I walked to my camper trailer, sat down in a chair. And my wife at the time said, are you okay? And I said, I think I broke my neck. And so they put me in the motor home and I laid on the floor. and. I started going numb everywhere. I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my feet. I couldn't move anything. And my son is standing over me and he's like, you know, 10 or whatever, maybe a little older. And he's like, dad, are you okay? Are you okay? And all I could think of is like, he's going to be feeding me from, you know, he's going to be feeding me. And it was such an awful thing. And I can't imagine what, you know, Jeremiah is going through. Right. But I think of him often. But I was fortunate enough and blessed enough. And I'm so grateful that once they got me out of the motorhome and put me on the stretcher, like everything came back. I was just in a position where I had pinched something really bad and it shut everything off, but it was enough to scare me. I finished that year. I, but I couldn't ride hard. And I knew that that was the end. And, and, you know, I had the answer to my prayer really. And so off I went. Well, yeah, exactly. You, you, your story ended well. Um, and you said that you don't go back and check on the ATV world at all. No, I mean, I, I just had to walk away. Like I just had, I just had to walk away because it was, I gave my life to it for my family. It was my family. And, uh, I don't know. It sounds weird. But it's just like, it was just hurt. I was hurt. You know, I, I don't know if I really wanted to leave. I don't know. When I, when I, reached I, I, I can't describe it. I can't describe it. So I can, no, I can, I can, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't name one person in the sport. No offense. You know, I listened to Shane on your program the other day. Cause I love Shane. What a great guy. It was fun to hear him tell some of the stories. And, uh, you know, and the reason I'm doing this is to give honor to all the people who raced back then 
and all the people who had the same dream, you know, because we were all on board together. We were all rowing the ship, the boat, you know, in the same direction and everybody was helping one another. And, you know, there's so many people like, you know, Tim Farr and, you know, I actually, I wrote some down, like, I'm just going to go through a list real quick because I think it's really important that every one of these people had influence on my life. Ray Howard, I won the Randy Howard Memorial Award the second year. Harold Goodman won it the first and what an honor it was to win that award. And I can't thank Ray enough. And I knew, you know, and Randy, I know is a good friend of yours, right? Yeah. Very close to you guys. And what an honor that was. And Timmy, for all the times that we sat and talked, Tom Carlson. I mean, without Tom Carlson, I could have never done anything. I mean, that guy could build an engine like, and <laughs> he was amazing. The things that he he could do with an engine, you know, uh, John Aaron's, John Aaron's did a lot of writing and stuff for the magazines and whatnot. Um, Shane Head, of course, Gary Denton, George Davis. Without Davis, we wouldn't have got to ESPN and I wouldn't have never got, I would have never got started, you know? And John Pellin was an inspiration to me. Like I heard him say something nice about me, but like I started and I was in a little bit early, but like I really needed help and I needed people like Pellin around me and George Davis and those people who could help out and like, and to see John take off the way that he did and get those big purses and make the sport like so exciting and actually have something there for the guys. Kudos to you, John. I mean, fantastic. Jeremy Shell, he was one of my best friends. You know, I called him the hick. I'm the one who coined that term because he just always talked like a hick. I, you know, I was from Michigan and he had that accent and that thing, that name stuck. He had it on his seat of his bike and his pants and everything. And I love Jeremy and I miss him. And, uh, and I don't, you know, I haven't talked to him in years and I heard Tom had an accident, you know, and I, and I also heard he's better and I'm glad. And I really need to bring myself to call some of these people, Brad Warner, Greg Vucina, me and Greg used to battle back and forth all the time when we were racing together. And I, I loved him as a person and his family, Toby Hutchinson. He was Shane's mechanic for a long time. You can't uh, Toby and me and Toby and Tom Gents. And there's a guy named Jim Fowler. Not too many people knew him, at, uh, but like all those people were my district 14 people who ended up coming to nationals and doing, you know, well there. And, and Toby got hooked up with Shane and that was awesome. Uh, Wayne Henson, Mark Legger gave me my first chassis ever. So like, and the list goes on. I don't, you know, I could go on and on and I don't want anybody, if you did, your name didn't get mentioned. It's, it's not, I just, I know that time's limited and stuff, but also the promoters who believed in me, like some of them didn't believe in what I was doing, but the first one who hooked on was Dave Coombs. What a great man that was or he was an, an inspiration to everybody. He was the writer's promoter. He did everything for the writers. And I always thought that every promoter needed to take a lesson from Dave. And when I started promoting events of my own, Dave, I always did it with Dave in mind. And I appreciated him. Bill Fisher from Ashtabula. Is Bill still alive? I think so. Really? I, he must've smoked like a, a, a carton of cigars a day or whatever, but <laughs> what a, what a great guy. Same thing. He always had the riders in mind and I appreciated him and he believed in everything that I did. And I loved having conversations with him. Sam Gammons. Um, same thing. 
uh, just a great promoter. And, you know, those people should be held up and, and, and held to a high standard because they were great. And you guys over at Duncan racing and you guys were the first ones to go over to Europe, you know, and expose ATV racing over there. And then everybody kind of followed from there, but you were the leaders and, you know, and you were the leaders in the industry. And, and from what you tell me, you're still there today and kudos to you, man. And I'm glad to see you're doing this, Lenny. Good for well, you. That comes full circle to what we talked about in the beginning, but I have a question for you. When I first reached out to you, it took you a little while to return. Were you figuring out what it was, what I was asking about and what I was asking you to do? Honestly, no, it's kind of the same thing. When I walked away, I just, I just walked away. You know, this, the whole thing triggers a lot for me. You know, there's a, there's a lot in there. There's, there's a lot in there. And, uh, that's kind of all I'm going to say about it. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's hard to go back to, but I'm going to be really honest now that I've done it. I'm really glad that I did. And so I'm going to issue a challenge. So, and you can tell all the people that you reach out to now that I want to hear their stories. Like, you haven't done Denton yet, right? I got Gary and I had a time. Gary, Gary, get your ass on here. I want to hear your stories. Eight time national champion. Are you kidding me? Barry Hawk. Have you got Barry yet? Yeah, Barry. I just recorded Barry last week. Um, I haven't Beautiful. scheduled him. I haven't scheduled his his date yet, but uh I I do have his recorded. Um when I started this, I was given and, and everybody that listens hears these same the same information, but, uh, I was told content, content, content. Yeah. I tape ahead and then shuffle the stack as anybody would that, that has to be responsible for how they lay their shows out. And I don't consider it a show. I don't consider anything about this being mine. I consider it all about being your guys's. It's all about the story. It's all about the industry. It's all about the people that, um, that make our industry that your, your story means everything to me. And it means everything to the fans. There's so many people that are going to be so excited that you came on and that you talk to us because my son still watches your videos and his children now watch your videos. And it's amazing. I had, uh, I have a friend and a customer in Canada named Jeff Cadman. Hi Jeff. How are you? I hope you listen. Uh, he, him and I were having a, uh, uh, Instagram or not an Instagram, but a messenger conversation, just randomness. And he sent me a little clip from one of your videos. And that started a big conversation. I had already reached out to you at that point. Um, so then I reached out to you again and this time you responded. Well, here's the thing. And you're going to find this unbelievable. I still get people reaching out, asking for videos. I don't have one video. Not one. They're all gone. I got, I had a distributor. I had a distributor who basically stole all my masters, never sent them back, disappeared into the night wind. I have none of the masters. They're gone. And I'll call them out on two wheels entertainment. 
stole my masters. Every one of them gone, gone in business. Huh? They still in business. I don't think so. I think, you know, those, those people were pretty much known, not just that business, but like, you know, and Wes will probably tell you the same thing. Like, you know, these, they contact you, they promise you, Oh, we're going to give you a percentage of this and a percentage of that. But you know, there's no way to track any of it. You know, then they send you a check for like 50 bucks. And then you're hearing that your tapes are being sold like in Europe and stuff. And it's like, Oh, I, I get 50 bucks for that. And Oh, by the way, where's my masters? Oh, we'll get them to you. And then they disappear. And I don't have one copy of any of my things. So if anybody knows where you can find them, let me know. So the maker could actually have a copy of his video. Well, what I was going to say is anybody that listens to this, Hey, isn't that an awful story? Put them on a disc, get them converted to a disc or send Byron a VHS and and he can convert it. Um, I have some that I could send you um, that you could convert. Well, I'll be happy to return them if you can find them. Like, so Well, obviously the, the, the one that's near and dear to my heart is the one where you put Doug Eichner on the cover. Um, Yep. You know, and I got to tell you that time that we went to Pont and Eichner rode that whole race. Who was, Oh, Shane was talking about that. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen an effort like that out of any one human being in my life. Just incredible, incredible. And if you, you know, and Shane told the story, so I don't need to tell it, but I'm just saying like, yeah, I mean, I was filming that and I was crying. I was literally behind the camera tears running down my face as Eichner was getting the IVs. And I'm like, dude, that's unbelievable. The most underrated racer maybe ever. It's always easy to say, oh, that guy was the best. Right. But like, he doesn't always come up as like the best in conversation underrated, but I think in I my think, opinion, he was one of the best. I think he, he never got the high rating because he never won the premier GNC class. He never yep. won the pro class. He won a, he, he had one overall, um, be won three open class pro-am titles, uh, but he never won the class. And, um, that hurt him. You know, he won five works titles. He won seven rendezvous titles, two, four stroke world championships, two score titles, two best in the desert titles and a multitude of golden state titles. Yeah. What more do you want? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I mean, no, maybe he didn't win eight national championships like Gary Denton or seven national championships like Chad Weenan, but, um, you know, that you can't discount Barry Hawk and, uh, Bill balance. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, there's just so many Walker Fowler, you know, I mean, these guys are all heroes, you know, uh, Bo Barron on the West coast winning 10 works titles or nine works titles. Excuse me. I'm, I'm giving him a championship that he hasn't won yet. Um, but he's leading the points and, uh, you know, there's just, we could talk greatness all day long and there's so many, there's so many great writers that deserve accolades that, you know, Timmy and Shane were both super fast and in their own right, Doug Gust and, you know, the heroic things that that guy could do on an ATV. Could you anybody know. ride like Doug Gust, like a stock bike? No, that we do. We, I mean, I like he wasn't, but like, I've seen him go out like on a stock bike and sail like 150 foot double, or he'd be like, see that jump. I'm going to do that when the race comes I'm like, you're going to what? Well, I'll be standing here when you do it. Cause I'm going to film that. And sure enough, that guy would leap that. I'm like, I wouldn't have even considered that that, whatever. Like and he did it on stock shocks. 
Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and when you talk about that and all those people not getting, you know, that was part of the reason for what I did is okay. I wanted them to be seen and let people know, like these people were doing these heroic things on a quad, right. on a quad, like that's unheard of. Well, what you'll like about this portion of, of the show is you have guys like Dustin Nelson, a convert for motorcycles, Gary Denton, convert for motorcycles, uh, Travis Damon on the West Coast, uh, Bo Barron uh, out here on the West Coast. These are converts for motorcycles. Right now, um, Bo Barron and Travis Damon are both racing uh, at high levels in the motorcycles. Um, Travis is in the pro class and both ATVN motorcycle. Uh, Bo runs the money classes in in works uh for and i say money classes they're classes that uh he gets con- contingency money for um whether he's riding a 250 or various machine so that he can earn money uh because that's what he does this is all he does for a living is race yeah uh, utvs motorcycles and atvs and um it, it's so pretty- let me ask you this question i'm going to ask you a quick question because okay. I, I need to know the answer to this how many people are able to ride now and make a living at it? Is, is it possible? Like I don't follow anymore. I mean, what is you're it probably, like? Probably, people, hundred people. What? There are ten to twelve people in the world probably making money racing ATVs, and I could be a little off because the guys in Europe, uh, I might have a little bit of a uh, a misconception. There's some Dakar guys that that's all they do is race the rallies, um, and the numbers are small. But the exposure European wise and South America wise is huge. In America, we don't consider it a a real thing. Um, But if you go there and you deal with it, um, it's real, it's hard, um, it's demanding, and you better know what you're doing or you're you're not going to finish. Yeah. So we're kind of, we're, we've grown a little bit, but well, the goal was like everybody, you know, and I was, I was always worried for the writers that once it happened, like if we could actually get the manufacturers to come back and sponsor that, that it would really kind of screw things up. Meaning like now you're going to be pitted against your friends and you have all like this pressure to win. And like, it would change everything because we were a big family. It was almost like a traveling circus, right? We could be mad at somebody because of what happened on the track, but then we were all down at like, you know, the local Texas roadhouse eating afterwards, right? Like throwing French fries at one another or whatever. I mean, is that atmosphere still happening? Um, the factories have been back twice. The last time they left us, uh, and Yamaha is still involved in the GNC and the GNCC. Um, they might have some feelers out in other areas, but uh, their main exposure is in those two series. They don't do much on the West Coast. Um, but when the factories left us the last time they hurt all the independents, they came in and hurt us. And when they left, they hurt us. Um, so now the independents, uh, like the mainstays like sparks and Duncan, um, we're still here. CT's still here. Um, our, our focus is a little different because we're on the West coast. So we deal with mostly West coast stuff. We still have international customers. We still do international racing. We'll still work with people on the East coast doing woods or whatever, but we don't travel back there. Uh, it's not cost efficient. Um, there are other players that have come in and they do a lot of that. Um, most of it's evolution within inside the industry. Um, yeah. And, and there's some great guys back there in the, in the, in the East 
doing the GNC stuff or doing the GNCC stuff. Um, and there's great writers. Uh, the, the, the skills and the talents have only gotten better. I mean, you know, you watch yeah. some of the evolution with guys like Travis Spader walking down the, the, the road telling, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you, you know, and he gets to the end of the line and, and he tells every guy in the line, I'm going to beat you all. And then leads the race until the bike gives up underneath him. Uh, you know, I always, I always told Travis, you do better to ride slower. You know, he just always rode the wheels off the bike. Like it couldn't like Travis, like if he could have a bike that was indestructible, like nobody could ever beat him. Right. Cause he was the best. He was in, in the best condition. He was talented beyond belief. I love Travis. He was a great guy. Yeah. I can't say enough about all those people. Oh yeah. You know, and uh, I still deal with PT too. You know, we call him PT two because Paul Turner one was the guy that, that had, that made the two stroke parts for Honda at first, which Lauren now owns the rights to all that or has for since, since 88. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many cool things that go on in the industry and there again, I, I started to say this and, and I'll finish the statement. That's why I'm doing this. I'm not doing this for any other reason other than the fact I love ATV racing and I love all the people in ATV racing and you could wear a sparks flag. You could wear a CT flag. You could wear, I don't care whose flag it is. I'm a fan. I'm an entertained and I enjoy it. Yes. I want the Duncan guys to always win, but the Duncan guys can't always win. So, um, you have to, you still have to Shane hit. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was at Ashtabula one time and you guys, you guys won, right? And Shane hit, somebody was saying something about it. I forget who. And Shane says, he goes, well, you got to let Duncan win every once in a while, or they just won't want to play anymore. <laughs> That's Shane. I've never forgotten that. I don't know. Shane is such a funny guy. So. Yeah. Well, there's, you guys had, I, you guys had, <laughs> I'm not, not like you guys didn't win. I mean, you guys had so many wins. I mean, Fantastic. You guys have had an amazing career. Um, so. And we're still fighting the fight. And uh, our 85 year old dad is still in the company and still working in the company. Um, Lauren gets to spend a lot of time with him. Um, Lauren, we have Lauren locked away in a private location and all he does is build engines. Um, we bring him out to talk to customers, uh, you know, every so often in the, in the afternoons. Um, but his, his best deal is to be left alone and work on motors. Yeah. You know? uh, I do a lot of pre-roll with the customers on how the system works, but you get, you get your motor in with Lauren, let him diagnose, you know, do an ex, uh, evaluation of it do the diagnostics on it and then call you with what you need and where you want to be. And, and here we go, you know, and, and, um, yeah. it's, it's Byron, I can tell you in 2019, we had some things go on in, in our personal life and in our professional life as well. And things had to change. Yeah. Um, uh, so I haven't traveled to a race since 19, the end of 19, um, a young man that I was going to go travel with in 2020 got injured. And I just, I just never, um, made it back. 
Um, I'm working with a, with a pro in works right now. And there's a possibility that I could go back to traveling, but you, you just never know. And, um, you just never know where your life's going to go. I've been, I traveled for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and that's that thing called life and it happens, right? Well, and sometimes it's just God, God steering you in a different direction, you know, and whether you want to go that way or not, like sometimes those things happen and then you think that it's awful and then it ends up being okay. You know, really a blessing to you and great things. You know, now I ride bicycles. Who would have ever thought I'm a mountain bike guy. Now I ride like 60 miles a week through the woods. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I started riding in 2012 um, and I stopped riding kind of in 18 uh, because I got my, I got married and my wife and I value the time together. Yeah. So I don't get to go uh, ride as much. Uh, I still do occasionally. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I wish that I would have found mountain biking when I raced. Yeah. To me, it's just that, just like when I was on quads, like when I was on a quad and I was racing, I was like in this, this place where no outside thoughts could really come to you. Cause if you have outside thoughts, you're not concentrating on racing. You know, it was like this peace, this serenity. Like I have a really super busy mind or usually have four or five things running through it at once. But like, that was the one place where I could just like me and the track and what I'm doing and the concentrate and the move forward. It was like a dance and it, it felt so good. It never lasts long. And then you have the friends and the, all that. And so I don't have ATV racing anymore and I don't have that family anymore, but like I could be behind the bars on my mountain bike going through the woods and it, it takes me back. And I think about it a lot when I, when I'm out there, you know, I was thinking about it today when I was out there and what I might say to you and everything that I said was completely different than what I thought I would say. <laughs> well, the, the story has gone nowhere that I thought it was going to. And, and that's great because I like it raw and I like it to just be non, I, I want it non-scripted because I Where'd want, you think we were going, Lenny? Pardon? Where'd you think we were going? I thought we would talk more about the creation of the videos and gotcha. where you came up with your ideas and, and things like that. And maybe some of the, the cool things that happen behind the scenes, you know, well, if you want to go there, we can do this again sometime and I'll run down that path for you too. I never I'll, run out of things to say. <laughs> I would love it. If, if you would, if you would be willing to, to, to have another sit down with me, sure, because I, I think you're going to be amazed at the reaction. I think, you're I think get. you need to get other people. Uh, like there's so many more people important, more important than me. I'm a small fish, right? I was just there for a few years in the grand scheme of things. I mean, there's so many legends that need their time and I believe in what you're doing. Well, you're let, not, let me put you it to this You're bored and you know, you, oh, I got to have somebody, you know, then throw me I, I disagree with you in your analogy of yourself. Okay. I believe that guys like you and Pellin and some of the other gentlemen that you mentioned are icons in our industry, you know, Wes Miller, uh, because the things that you've brought the industry have helped us gain ground and gain respect in the world. And the motorcycle guy doing the media thing now, I didn't mean to interrupt. Is anybody out there doing what we did now or no, no, there's nothing like it. Hmm. Arlen Foley, Harlan Foley from dirt nation covers as much as he can. Um, 
and he used to be ATV riders, which I don't think was around when you were around. Um, ATV scene is pretty much gone. Um, there's yeah, I mean, like social I said, media. So if I would have been around when social media hit, it would have destroyed me too. Like I heard what Pellin was saying. I get it. Like, I mean, yeah, it, it, what do you, you do? You would, have, you would have adapted to social media. I mean, I'm not a social media fan, but look at here. Everything I do for ATV talk is social media related. Yeah. You know, I do anywhere from six to eight promo videos a week and put them on Facebook and Instagram. And then I have the guests do a promo uh, you know, video to, to get them to people to watch their shows. And they're just all short little clips, but you know, you know all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, and there's a lot of people that stand, that thank me and I go, I don't want, I don't really feel that it's me. I feel that let's, let's thank the ATV world. Let's thank the community because the, it's all really about you guys. It's all, you know, it, it's all about the people that come on the show and tell their story. And, um, no, I'll never want to be the guy in front of the camera, but okay. I'm the guy that's sitting here because yeah. I'm the guy that, you know, was lucky enough to have two daughters that one kind of pushed it and made it happen. And then the other fell into loving the editing portion. Mm-hmm. She wants to make movies. Um, hey, maybe you're the next ones. Uh, maybe you pick up the torch and move forward. Maybe, you know, maybe, well, I think we already, I think in a way, in a little bit yeah. of a way we are, um, and talking with, with so many guys, I mean, I've talked with Joe bird and, and I've talked to Doug Eichner and I've talked to Danny Prather and I've talked to, uh, Shane hit and I mean, the, the Doug Gust and Barry Hawk. And, uh, I talked to uh, Jason Sloan, um, just Perry. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Bob Sloan's Bob Sloan's son, you know, and, and, and I've reached out to so many other people and I I don't have a waiting list, but what I have is a pre-record list that, that there's so many pre-recorded. And when I get to a list of people that um, are set up to schedule and talk to, I just start taking the people that are coming and, you know, figure it out. Yeah. Uh, I have no, Byron, I have no game plan and I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just reaching out to people and talking to them. Well, you know, the reality is that it just evolves. When I, when I went to ATV racing for the first time, like I said, I was just looking for a way to help pay to be there and ride, you know, and it was making music videos to Motley Crue and like whoever that was cool. Van Halen. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it evolved. Then it evolved and it turned into all that. Oh my gosh, so much. It's like watching popcorn pops. Next thing you know, it's overflowing. You know, and how do you handle that? Do they even have an awards banquet anymore? Yes, they do. That's cool. That's cool. Who's doing that? Uh, I don't, I don't even know. Gotcha. I know that it it still happens. Go Byron. There you go. And, and, And another reason why you need to be on here is the history. Nobody knows the history. You know, you came into a sport that was already there, but there's history before you. Yeah. I try to go back to those guys in the seventies and talk with them. And there's a few guys in the seventies. I haven't even got to yet, 
that were around when it was rigid three wheelers and they were archaic and they were nineties and they were making them one thirty twos and spitting trainees out on the ground and doing all kinds of cool stuff, learning, uh, learning our craft. And most of these guys are successful businessmen now doing other things. Um, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the problem is, is they're, they're so busy and it's so hard to get to them and, and, and sit down and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But you need to get them before they're not around anymore. I'm trying. I sit my dad down as often as I possibly can and, and pick his brain. And sometimes we talk about, you know, racing in the sixties and, and um, you know, in the fifties and never mention ATVs. And then a story will come up about him working on the dyno with, you know, testing fuels for VW magazine on his little 90 ATC 90 dyno, you know? And uh, yeah. So dad tells the stories he can remember when he remembers, you know, and, and, uh, it's incredible. And I, and I reach out to everybody to reach out to your friends and the other people in the industry, because we can't do this without you. Um, as you well know, everything takes money. Um, the time it takes to produce one video, one, one audio podcast, nobody realizes how many hours it takes. They just think that I plug record and it's done. Well, there's so much more. My daughter's going to love this episode because you talk with your hands and they thunk on the desk a lot. And you know, you made, you shot videos. You got to, you, you have to fix those things and yeah. spend hours working on it. And just to make you and I look good. Somebody close to me complains about my heavy hands. You know, yeah, I'm six six two fifty. So yeah, I'm, uh, I have heavy hands, and I do talk with them. So right, what Sorry, kind girls. of bike do you ride? Sorry, girls, you got some editing to do. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> what what kind of mountain bike do you ride? I have a, a specialized stump jumper. Oh, nice. Yeah, Good things about those. I've never got. Yeah, I I had uh, I had two other bikes, and I just bought the stumpy. I had a Santa Cruz, a really nice Santa Cruz, a, a fifty ten. And, uh, another one, it was a German bike, like a ghost, it was called. So I sold them both. And then I got a new, uh, stumpy. You didn't go to the e-bike? You know, no, I'm just, I didn't really think about it to be honest. And then Pellin started talking about, they got e-bike races and I'm like, dang it. Maybe I should have looked at an e-bike. And then I looked at the price of an e-bike and I'm like, eh. no, I'm not. That's the only thing holding me back. <laughs> you know, I heard you guys talking about like staying in shape and stuff. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's mind and body for me. You know, right. being behind bars is where I've always had uh, where I'm able to clear everything out. And that's what keeps me positive and keeps me moving forward. And that's where I spend my time with God. And like, that's where everything kind of comes together for me because there's no distractions. It's the same thing. There's just no distractions. And well, it's not like racing. I can still have one thought in my mind and ponder it while I'm out there. Um, but at least I don't have four going on. The best therapy I've ever had in my life was racing like a uh, desert, long desert races and building bikes because I've always built machines by myself 
in a, in a, in an environment where it was just me. And when you're racing long desert races, um, you're in a, in a zone with your own mind, uh, you're going faster than you could ever imagine. And it, it's just, you hear the whistle of the wind and your exhaust note behind you. And it's incredible. It's just so surreal. I know you're going to end up editing this because I talk endlessly, but if you can leave this one part in, and this will be the end for me because you just reminded me something. I want to thank uh, Mike Penland. Mike Penland called me every year for 10 years after I was done racing, maybe longer, at least 10. Will you come and do the Baja with me? Will you come and do the Baja with me? Will you come and do the Baja with me? Every year he would call me and every year I had an excuse not to do it. And it might be one of the biggest regrets of my life. Mike, I'm so sorry that I didn't do that with you. And I really missed an opportunity and I hope you're doing well, buddy. He just and had a medical that, issue. He has a medical issue. He just did a, had a medical issue. He's doing good. Um, he's doing good. I talked to his daughter. I've had him on the show three times. Um, I've seen that. I want to go. I've seen like the parts, like there's, I see at least part one and two. So like, I'm going to hit him up next or listen. And uh, he is he's one of the most God fearing people I know. And one of my favorite people in the world. And, and I hope that he's listening and I hope you're feeling better. Well, he's, he's an incredible man. And his daughter, Sarah is, a, is an incredible lady. And together uh, they came on the show and we talked and had a great time. And when you talk about sacrifice, inspired his third episode of, of inspired uh, because I have an inspired show and I have ATV talk and it's all under the ATV talk logo, but his third inspired episode, um, he, he teaches us all about giving about yeah. giving the ATV industry. He's an amazing man. And he lost his son at Baja. So that's that, listen to that episode. And you, okay. I will. I definitely will. Yeah. So Byron, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to send you a schedule and we're going to do this again. And we're going to get into how you made videos, what you thought was cool about them and, and what made, what made it tick for you and what made it so cool. Sure. Okay. So that's where you got to get better at the interviews. Then you can lead people into what it, I know you like the free form, but if you want to hear that, like, you got to be like, all right, all right, wait, wait, hold on. Well, I let you, I let you run with, with your story um, because it, it, it's so important to get that information out because um, one of the big things that I'm told by everybody is they, they want the humanity. They want to know you. They want to know about you. Um, they want to know those other things too. But if we get the humanity out and, and about you in the beginning, then we can talk about that other, the cool stuff the second time or the third time. Yeah. Cool. I'm in. I enjoyed it. It's great seeing you, Lenny. And tell everybody I said hi. And I guess I did mean to be a stranger and now I'm feeling bad about it. Don't feel bad about it because you're back. And I think that the overwhelming amount of people that are going to reach out to you is going to surprise you. Well, I definitely miss everybody. That's for sure. Well, so. I, I'm honored and thank you so much for taking some time to spend with me on ATV Talk. 
The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.